Well, good afternoon, church. It's great to be together. If we've not yet met, my name is Robin, and my wife Laura and I serve as the lead pastors at Lift Church, and it's great to be together on a Sunday. And uh, let's get into the Word. We're in Mark chapter 16, so if you'd flip it, that'd be great. This is our last week. <clears throat> In the Gospel of Mark, as a part of our daily devotions, starting tomorrow, we begin our journey right on into the book of Acts. So going to continue the story of the disciples and the church uh, with the book of Acts. So make sure you get a daily Devo copy or check engage.liftchurch.ca. It will be up there starting on Monday. And uh, you can follow the devotions with us as a church family all together. And uh, it's actually going to be really neat because uh, this week, next week, and the few weeks that follow, uh, we're going to just naturally as a church be uh, going through daily devotions. But it works out that we're going to be covering uh, in our time and devotions some passages that are particularly important to the DNA of our church and our culture. Uh, we're going to be looking this week at the Great Commission uh, in Mark chapter 16. Next week, we're going to be looking at the Acts 2 church and this incredible, uh, beautiful picture of a church that uh, lives into intentional community. And we're going to look at Acts 2 and Acts 4 as we journey through that. And then we're going to turn to Acts 8, which is a really important uh, passage in the book of Acts about how the church moved outward from Jerusalem to begin to reach the entire world and what that process looked like. And these passages are, are quite important to the DNA of our our church. They've really influenced how we think and how we live. And so uh, it's really uh, providential that we're going to be studying them uh, sequentially as a church. And so today we're going to be wrapping up in Mark 16, uh, which is an important passage to our church, uh, and then uh, continuing on into the book of Acts. So I want to encourage you, if you've not been on the daily Devo train, to get on the Devo train. It is the best thing that you can do for your walk with Jesus, but also uh, to integrate you into community and uh, no better way than to start tomorrow with the book of Acts. But let's make sure we give Mark uh, its proper and uh, due uh, attention. So if you turn with me to Mark 16, let's just take a moment to pray. So Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that nourishes us. And uh, Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be soft to receive what you have for us today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read from Mark 16. Jesus has recently or just been resurrected. Uh, he was crucified and resurrected. That's what we studied this week in our daily devotions. And uh, <clears throat> the final passage is actually this passage. And uh, so Mark 16, Jesus is about to appear to his disciples. And so we're going to start in verse 14. It says, Later, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. So the Lord Jesus after he was speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by, by the accompanying signs. 
So this passage is uh, very similar to a, a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, a different account of Jesus' life that essentially says the same story from a slightly different perspective. And, and, and this final commission that Jesus gives to his disciples to go into the world and preach, to announce, to tell others about what has happened in the resurrection, and then to reproduce that, to call them to receive Jesus as Lord, to be obedient in baptism, and then to go and reproduce that process. As a church, core to our DNA is this process, this call, this invitation to be disciple-making disciples. And if you're wondering, like, what is discipleship? Well, it really is just being obedient to what Jesus has said here. But we've uh, put some words around that to help it make it a little bit more memorable. So we as a church define discipleship as uh, glorifying God by following and being transformed by Jesus while inviting, modeling, training, and empowering others to do likewise. That's the definition we use all the time. If you didn't catch it all, it's okay. You'll hear it lots um, in your time in our church. Eventually, it'll become something that you're quite familiar with. But core to discipleship, often we think it's still, it's just this, you know, following Jesus abstractly. But it's quite a specific call. It's following and being transformed as Jesus becomes Lord of our lives. But we don't believe that it's just about us having a relationship with God. It's also about us outworking that relationship with God by multiplying or reproducing disciples. And so one of the things we desire as a church is to be a discipleship movement. So not just to make disciples, but to reproduce disciples. And the idea of a discipleship movement is very simple that each person who calls Jesus Lord takes responsibility, as he has commanded us in this passage, to reproduce the process of making disciples as they themselves have been made disciples. So in a way, a discipleship movement is what happens when we just do what Jesus has told us to do in this passage. And the way it works is that everyone who's a follower of Jesus is both being discipled and discipling someone. And that's why we put so much emphasis on Simple Church, because it makes sure that there's a context into which everyone is being discipled and a mechanism through which everyone can be empowered to make disciples. That's the core essence of our church is this obedience to Jesus in disciple making. And the place that that happens is in Simple Church. And I want to demonstrate how Jesus actually uh, teaches his disciples to make disciples in this passage. And he does it brilliantly. Jesus is the master discipler. He was the best discipler. With no budget and uh, a few poorly trained guys and, and uh, all the adversity in the world, Jesus launched a movement that has changed the world. As people have announced the good news of the resurrection. How did he do that? Well, this passage is actually set up as a, a kind of a mirror. Jesus first sits down with his disciples. So he invites his disciples to be with them. And then he rebukes them. So he, he says, come be with me. And then there's like a teaching and a training. So he invites the disciples and then he trains them. He teaches them what it means to be uh, one of his followers. And then, so that's the first uh, couple verses. That's really verses 14. But then in verse 15, he sends the disciples out to go and do what he has just done with them, to, to preach, to announce, to call to obedience, to, to rebuke, to, to see people made disciples. 
And so this passage is both Jesus discipling his disciples, but also empowering his disciples to reproduce what they have experienced. And I want to demonstrate how that works and how it changes the way we think about church, how it changes the way we think about relationships, and what a beautiful invitation it is. So let's start with how Jesus does this in verse 14. It says, Later he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were reclining at the table. He appeared to the eleven disciples as they were reclining at the table. So let's, let's consider this for a second. Jesus has conquered the grave. He has overcome the grave. And uh, as a result, he has overcome the power of death. He's no longer subject to the constraints of death. And, and it's fascinating to me that what Jesus chooses to do is to, is to use the table as the place of arrival that he shows up to his disciples while they're having a meal. And in fact, if you look at the different gospel accounts, the primary place that Jesus shows up is at the table, having a meal. There's a beautiful account in the gospel of John where Jesus is cooking his disciples a meal on the beach. And you see this narrative reproduced in in the gospels, that Jesus arrives and shows up not in power, not in uh, sort of this like, you know, ostentatious, bold kind of move, but he shows up at a dinner table while people are sharing a meal. You'd think that if Jesus had defeated death, he would have sought to claim territory and claim the seats of power, yet he doesn't. He shows up while they're having a meal, as they were reclining at the table, as they were resting, as they were in community. Jesus enters into that place. He chooses the act of eating and sharing space and a meal with the very people who rejected him just a few days earlier. That's an interesting thought about what it means to follow Jesus. You know, we've made the, the cross the primary picture of the gospel. And in many ways it is. The cross is a beautiful picture of the gospel. The cross is where Jesus was, was, um, was crucified, and it's a reminder of his resurrection. Uh, there's a reason why typically we don't portray Jesus on the cross. It's to remind us that Jesus has been resurrected. But, but you see, the cross was not the end of the story, and an empty cross wasn't the end of the story. In some ways, if we could picture just one picture, choose just one picture to summarize the gospel, I would humbly suggest that that maybe the dinner table is the better picture rather than the cross. The cross is important, but it was a means to achieve relationship. And what communicates a desire for relationship like the dinner table? We need to make sure that our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what discipleship is, is rooted and anchored in this idea that what Jesus desires is relationship. The objective of Jesus' death was not the cross, it was the table. It was the communing of people together who have been reconciled to him, even those that have rejected him. Jesus says, come and eat with me. Jesus came that we would be reconciled to God, restored to relationship, 
made whole and enjoy his presence. My favorite passage that summarizes the gospel and our response to it is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And nothing says reconciliation like a dinner table. Jesus chooses his his point of arrival, his his point of calling and commissioning his disciples as as not the the mountain, not overlooking the, the kingdoms, not launching a revolution, but he arrives at the dinner table and says, go and preach. The fact that Jesus' life The fact that Jesus' resurrected life was spent around a dinner table, not just in Mark's gospel, but in in all the gospels, should tell us what God values. Relationship. The heart of the story of the gospel is that we who have been estranged, isolated, and separated from the holiness of God due to our own sinfulness have been invited back into relationship with God by the work of Jesus. We've been invited to sit at his table We've been invited to the banquet. And until we understand that the objective of the cross was reconciliation to relationships, we won't really understand what it means to be a disciple. The invitation of Christ in many ways to us is come and eat with me. I think it's interesting that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Come and be with me. Come and spend time with me, Jesus says to his disciples. And this is such good news because we spend our lives chasing ragged after success, chasing the pursuits of ambition, chasing uh, fame and recognition, chasing influence, uh, chasing all these things. And Jesus just says to us, come and eat with me. He appears to the 11 while they were reclining. He enters into their space. So many of us are running around chasing life, and Jesus says, just come and sit. And so if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, we we orient our lives like Jesus did around relationships. We open our lives up to others. I've taught extensively over the years that we should not be uh, career obsessed or obsessed about ourselves and that we should serve and all these things. And, but that's not because those things are, 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 are you know, because success or whatever is it bad, but it's because those things usually come at the cost of our relationships. And the most precious thing we have in our lives are our relationships. We believe that that, that it is our relationships and the call to genuinely love those around us that is the most precious and powerful invitation that we have. And discipleship, if we're going to be serious about discipleship, it's all about relationship. It means that we look at our relationships not as expendable uh, sort of chips that we can easily replace so we, we just throw our friends away and we throw our relationships away. It means we fight for our relationships. We invest in our relationships. We have the hard conversations. We seek reconciliation. We eat together. You know, the center of my home, uh, if you walk in my door, uh, if you don't trip over kids' shoes and backpacks and general chaos, You'll enter straight into our kitchen. Our, our kitchen sort of the first thing you, you come into. But immediately on the left to our, our kitchen is a big dining room. 
uh, our house doesn't have a lot going on. It's it's just, just basically a kitchen and a, and a dining room. And, uh, and when you come to our dining room, there's a big, uh, like, 10-foot table that can seat 12 people. And Laura and I, as we have thought about how do we want, what kind of home do we want to have? And what, what will be the center of our home? You know, the center of the North American home is quite often the TV. And... Uh, TV is, is all about relationship that's oriented like this, right, where you're watching something. But, but we believe that, that, that the heart of Christ is relationship, and the call to make disciples is about relationship, and at the center of relationship building is, is quite often the meal. And so Laura and I have decided to build our home around the dinner table. And so most nights of the week, or many nights of the week, if you come to our home, and many of you have, it's, it's a, kind of a chaotic affair because we have young children and it's not always easy. Um, but that there's almost always people joining us for dinner. Why? Well, why? Because we believe that the call to make disciples requires that we have open lives to relationships. It's why we teach so often on open home, why we open our lives up, because it's when the homes and hearts of those who follow Christ are open and our lives say, come, the broken and hurting world around us will see transformation. So I guess my question for us is, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, how could you open your life up for relationship? How could you slow down, create room to share a meal, love somebody, hear somebody's story, listen to them, and create space for others? Who could you recline at the table with and invite them to hear about Jesus. At the heart of Jesus is the table. And he launches this movement that transforms the world, not by a big public address, but at a dinner table. And so what happens, I guess, is the question at this dinner table. He's sitting down with them, they're reclining, Jesus has come, and they're probably sharing a meal, and as they had done just before his crucifixion. What does he do? And it's interesting to me that he does uh, the same thing in Mark that he does in John, which is it says that he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Jesus confronts the condition of their hearts. Basically, uh, and I think it maybe is somewhat fair, is they, they didn't really believe the resurrection was real. Uh, they hadn't encountered Jesus yet themselves, and they were doubting the reports of the resurrection. So Jesus shows up and says, hello, I'm here. And he rebukes their, their hardness of heart. But this is important. You might be like, well, well, well hold on a second. If, if Jesus is so welcoming, why is he rebuking them? If it's all about relationship, why is there this rebuke? Well, th this is so important to understand about being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, come as you are. But he doesn't say, stay as you are. He says, come as you are, but not stay as you are. And our world has gotten this, I think, really muddled because uh, for a whole number of reasons, we are afraid to challenge how other people might live. And yet, if, we're, if we want to follow Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is to say, you know, you don't have to behave correctly in order to receive Jesus as Lord. But if you receive Jesus as Lord, you should start living like Jesus is Lord. In other words, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. 
And our world says, unless you love everything a person does, you don't love the person. But Jesus says, I love you so much, even though I don't love everything you do. He looks at these disciples and he rebukes them. He corrects them because he loves them. He sees that they haven't yet experienced the full reality of the resurrection. So he confronts that and invites them to receive the reality of the resurrection, to receive his lordship. You see, all are welcome at the feet of Christ. All are welcome at the table of Christ. But we cannot stay as we are when we arrive at the table. We come with hard hearts. We have perhaps not yet been transformed by the power of the resurrection. And and when we sit down with Jesus, what happens is the reality of his resurrection, the reality that he has conquered sin and death actually starts to change us, to confront us, to rebuke us. And so the work of discipleship is, is one, come and eat with me, come and be with me. But as people learn to see and follow Jesus, there is a corrective dimension to discipleship. We shouldn't stay the same as we follow Jesus. You know, the 21st century world has, has often, we just don't handle rebuke well. We, like, if somebody corrects us, we take it so, we're so fragile and, 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 and reactive against that. Like, if somebody says we've done something wrong, it's like, oh my gosh, you hate me. And it's like, no, I love you. I don't want you to stay the same. And that's what Jesus is doing his disciples. He's saying, I love you. I want you to see the power of the resurrection. I want you to see the power of my lordship. An encounter with the resurrected Jesus will change our hearts. And so there's this, this beautiful reality to discipleship. On one part, it's we're sitting at a table, we're invited to relationship. And the other part, we're compelled to, 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 to see our hard hearts crack open to where a place where we repent and we change and we become more like Christ. And discipleship is both of those aspects working in unison together that we would all learn to be more like Christ. I've had to wrestle with this question quite a bit around like, okay, what does it mean to, like, why does Jesus rebuke? And, and it's because I think we genuinely don't like it. We, we want to be able to follow Jesus, but never actually change. We want to be able to follow Jesus and at the same time be right all the time. We want to be able to say, uh, I'm a Christian, but never actually enter into that place of repentance in. And it's a shame because on the other side of repentance, on the other side of a rebuke is actually wholeness, is actually an encounter with the living God. And so discipleship is both. It's, as Jesus models, it's, it's come and, and, and eat, but it's also be rebuked and be made more like Jesus. And so then, so Jesus models this, right? It's, he says to his disciples, he, he meets with them, he meets them at the table, he rebukes them. But then he says, go into the world, verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So just as Christ has come to us, just as he has come to our table and met with us and welcomed us, and just as Christ has, has changed us, and corrected us and molded our hearts to be more like him and called us to that place of repentance, he then sends us to go and do what he has done. Just as Christ came to us and taught us how to be obedient, we go to the world, receive the world, 
love those in the world and invite them to receive Christ. This account, as it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, says that we are to go make disciples of all nations. To make disciples. To launch a discipleship movement. You might wonder, well, like, why all the world? Well, we can't afford to be people that build lives for ourselves. The highest and most holy calling that we all have if we're followers of Jesus is to go into the world and announce the good news. That's your job. If you're a follower of Christ, is to be on mission, to be a missionary, to be one who goes into the world and tells people about Jesus. To preach to all the world means that we go to those that have never heard about it. And our world says, well, you know, everybody believe whatever you want to believe, but Jesus says to us, go and announce who I am. We are being sent into the world with a message, a clear message of a call to receive Jesus as Lord. We must go. If we are to be obedient to Christ, we must be people that are not people that stay, but rather people that go. That's why we are as a church, we're not a church that stays where we are. You know, we could have been really happy and there's some days where I wonder, maybe we should have. Maybe we should have just stayed at McMaster. It was, you know, we were, things were going well and we're kind of just, we, we had a, like a nice little thing happening. But how could we agree? How could we as a people, how could we who have received Christ look at all the campuses that have no church on them or don't have enough of a Christian presence or have people that have, don't have access to the gospel? How could we sit in a place of comfort. Like, how could we do that? When Christ says, go in, Christ says to us, go into all the world. As you have received me, go and bring my presence to others. So as a church, we, we said, you know, God, we don't really know what we're doing. We're going to have to figure it out. And sometimes it's been a hard and, and painful journey. We haven't always done it well. And, you know, we've made lots of mistakes. Lord knows I've made many mistakes in the process, but we're at least seeking to be obedient to this call to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So we don't stay where we are. We go. We form deep relationships. We call each other to share the meals, to receive Christ, to be made like Christ. And then we go to those who have never had that opportunity. But in order to go preach the, the gospel to all creation, we have to overcome uh, like, a, like a resistance. We have to overcome uh, some, some, some pressure from our world to not do that. It's really hard to be people that go. We have to overcome what I would call the barriers of comfort. So if we're going to be people that go, we have to overcome some barriers of comfort. Well, first of all, we have to overcome barriers of comfort in our cliques and even in our friendships. What do I mean by that? Well, deep friendship, like deep brotherhood and sisterhood is really, really important and healthy. And my prayer for our church is that our deepest and longest lasting friendships will be formed while we live on mission together. 
And in many cases in our church, like the relationships that we've experienced are, are tremendously deep as we've served and sacrificed and, and journeyed together, man. We have, uh, we have experienced a lot of, a lot of wins, a lot of stories, a lot of pain together. And there's this depth of relationship that, that can start to form. Even something as simple as just serving at a region together, right? You show up every week, you, you set up the chairs, you, you, you know, you, you, you go and do evangelism on campus, whatever it is, you, you do the work and, and that starts to form these really deep and beautiful relationships. But what can happen, and this is currently happening in our church, it's, it's already happened and uh, often in, in second and third year, this starts to settle in, that, that very quickly those deep relationships can become unhealthy and cliquey. And what can happen is rather than being people that go to the world and preach to all nations, we can become people that are just really happy with our crew of five or six people that are our pals. And if we're not careful, we can start to basically view not our commitment to mission as the first, but rather just our commitment to our clique. If we're not routinely, and I'm by, by routinely, I mean every time we're hanging out with our group of friends, inviting those in who are on the outside, we have a clique. And we are failing to embody the gospel. Cliques are antithetical to the gospel. And the thing is, nobody thinks that they're part of a clique. And so what we have to do is we have to examine our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, would you help me see where my preference for my friends is a limiting access to the gospel? And so ask yourself, is my social sphere dominated by the same small group of people all the time? And are there people outside that group who are struggling to break in? You know, another way that this could be expressed is the comfort of even our own ethnicity. If all of our friends look like and sound like us, we're failing to embody the gospel. If we're to be gospel people, we have to be people that go to all nations, which means that we cross the barriers that would otherwise separate us, language, ethnicity, culture, uh, preference, interests, all those sorts of things, we cross those barriers, we enter into an uncomfortable space so that we can bring the gospel to people. I understand this quite deeply. It might surprise you to know, because I think most people are like, oh, you obviously grew up in Canada, but I actually didn't. I immigrated to Canada when I was a boy from South Africa and uh, South African culture is very different than Canadian culture. And so when I arrived in Canada, I spoke with a very thick accent and wore funny clothes and didn't play any sports. I'd never played hockey or anything like that before. I played cricket and, and rugby and I mean, everybody thought I was strange and I was bullied relentlessly. And yet one of the things that caused me to fall in love with Christ was when I was uh, 10 years old, there was a teenager, he must have been, my guess is 19 or 20, uh, who decided to invest into me as a person. And I was a strange, rejected, weird immigrant kid. And Jarrett was his name. He decided to put time into my life. He loved me and he created space for me. I was nothing like him. I was half his age. I had none of the same interests. I was weird and Jared decided to several times a week spend time with me. And in part because of his investment in my life, I learned to love and follow Jesus. He would take me to serve in uh, downtown Toronto and 
I remember as like a boy going and, and working at soup kitchens and stuff with Jarrett because he wanted to teach me what it was like to follow Jesus. We have to cross the boundaries of our age, our ethnicity, our stage, uh, our culture in order to bring the gospel to people. If you look around you and all your friends look like, sound like, and are the same age as you, I would encourage you to broaden your friendships, to broaden your space of invitation that, you would be, that we would be people that go to all the world. That's why our church has called people to be what we call missionaries. Those are people that are no longer students to go and just continue to love the campus. Is that an easy thing? No, it's hard. It's awkward sometimes. People are like, it's weird. But it's like, we're going to open our lives up. We're going to love people. One of my heroes is Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to inland China in uh, the mid-1800s. And uh, he goes to China in his 20s and uh, realizes very quickly that if he's going to reach the people of China, he needed to do things differently. Uh, so he learns the language. He cuts his hair to uh, be in, at that time, a traditional Chinese style. He adopts traditional Chinese dress. He essentially became Chinese in order to reach the people of China. And over the next 50 or so years, he would face tremendous sickness, poverty, challenges, setbacks, criticism, even the death of his own children while they were in China due to sickness. And yet he remained faithful to the call of God to reach people of all nations with the gospel. Just before he died, there was a tremendous challenge. Many of his friends were actually martyred in a revolution for following Christ. He suffered tremendously for the gospel, giving his life to it and eventually dying in China. But if you fast forward 150 years, there are tens of millions of Christians in China, despite significant opposition. And a lot of that can be traced back to Hudson Taylor's commitment to overcome the barriers of his social world. He grew up very wealthy. He gave that up. To overcome the barriers of his culture, he left his culture. To overcome the barriers of his age and stage, to overcome the barriers of pain and loss, to say, I will go and preach the gospel to all nations. He went to all the world. And that's why we have called our church to be a church that multiplies disciples to every campus. You know, when we first started talking about reaching every campus, it was... It was about church, planting churches on every campus. And people were like, I don't really feel called to be a church planter. And then when we studied the scriptures, we realized there isn't really a call or a commandment to go plant churches. There's a commandment to preach the gospel and to make disciples. And what we've learned over the last number of years is that it's disciple making that is the call of the Christian. And that healthy churches are a result of healthy disciple making. And so I want to illustrate this, what this looks like, has looked like practically in our church. There's a guy uh, in our church, his name's Jesse Brown. He leads our church at the University of Guelph, and he's doing his PhD in geology there. And Jesse is, uh, for all accounts, a pretty ordinary student. Um, he did four years uh, of his undergraduate degree. He served in our church and uh, was part of a simple church and eventually apprenticed and led his own simple church. And when he was graduating, he was wrestling with, well, where do I go? What does it look like for me to live on mission? And there was a need for 
uh, leadership at, at Guelph. And so Jesse puts up his hand and, you know, originally he had planned to go out west to, for a lucrative, a lucrative career in oil and gas because he's studying geology and it would have done very well and would have opened up a lot of opportunities for him to do his uh, graduate studies there. But he said, you know, I, I really feel like I need to be obedient to Christ and I need to put making disciples as a priority. So he puts up his hand and goes to the University of Guelph to go make disciples there and has faithfully led through the pandemic and now, there's a vibrant community of disciple-making happening at the University of Guelph now because in large part of Jesse and many other people's faithfulness to this commandment to preach the gospel to all nations. Jesse has no ambition for himself. He has no desire to grow an organization to live, called Lift Church. He has a desire to make disciples. What a privilege it is for him to journey together with us, for us to journey with him. That's how our church thinks, is we, we, we're called to make disciples. And so what we're trying to do is create an environment where we can, through simple church, the process of apprenticing and leading, and eventually one day being sent, that we can be faithful to the commandment of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And the best place to do that is campuses, because there's so much opportunity and, and willingness to hear the gospel. And so we've said we will be a people that go. And so when we preach, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus' resurrection requires that we respond to it. We either believe it and are baptized and will be saved, or we don't and we will be condemned. Heaven is real. Eternity is forever. And as a result, there is urgency to our work. There is urgency to the call to make disciples. It's so easy to push the call to make disciples, to push the uh, being obedient to Christ to another day, to say, I'll, I'll, I'll make disciples later when I'm older, when I'm established. And there is urgency. There are lives at stake in this call. Eternity is forever. And Jesus calls us individually to respond to the reality of his resurrection and, in, and then to invite the world around us to respond as well. And so my question for us very simply is, if, we are, if you are a follower of Christ, have you received the call to make disciples on your life? Are you being obedient to that call to make disciples? Who are you discipling? Who is your table open to? Who is your life open to? Is it a clique or is it an invitation? Is your life an invitation for people from all over, the people you meet, whether they're like you or not, to come and know Jesus? And my second question is for those of you that have not received Jesus. The resurrection is a question that we must resolve. If the resurrection is real, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it changes everything and it demands a response. We believe Jesus did die and he did rise from the dead and he did give us this call to go to all nations. And if you have not received that call to know Jesus, I'd, I'd invite you to receive it today. If you've seen and studied the evidence, you say, you know what, there is evidence for Jesus' resurrection. I believe it. I trust it but you've not actually committed your life to following Jesus and actually said, you know what? I'm willing to say yes to Jesus and yes to getting baptized. I'd invite you to do that. 
and to do it without delay. There's urgency here because if you do receive Jesus, then you get to be sent on mission to go see other people do the same. I pray that our church this year would be people filled with people that love Jesus, have open tables, and invite the world to hear and respond to the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us, that you have invited us to dine with you, that you've showed up at our table and you've invited us to yours, that we've been invited to share together in relationship. Jesus, we thank you that the dominant and the most important thing in Christianity is not rules and all these things. It's us relationship with you. And I pray that we would receive it, but not just receive it passively for ourselves, but receive relationship with you and respond to the lordship that you then have over our lives to be obedient to your call to go and make disciples. Lord, I pray that you would raise up a new generation of simple church leaders, of people that are willing to, to step into the process of making disciples in our church. Jesus, I pray that you would raise up a new generation of people that are passionate about discipleship, passionate about preaching the gospel to all nations. Jesus, I pray that there would be within our church a, a new and fervent urgency in disciple making. God, because eternity is at stake, and we desire people to know you. And Lord, for those that have not received you, God, I pray that you would speak to them even in these moments. That there would be a clear response and call, a clear response to the call that you have on our lives to receive you as Lord and the promise of your resurrection. Amen. Amen. Well, be blessed, church. Have a great week. And let's, uh, if you have anything encouraging from Daily Devos, please post it to the Devos chat on Discord. Would love to share it together as we start a new journey in Acts starting tomorrow. Be blessed. Have a great week.